0: So, a national cross sectional analysis of Medicare claims um, had demonstrated that for each $1,000 decrease in median household income, the number of tariff procedures performed per 100,000 Medicare beneficiaries was 0.2% lower. Um, even more, um, for each one unit increase in the Distress Community Index, which is a marker again of, of um, socioeconomic status, the number of tariff procedures performed per 100,000 of these beneficiaries was 0.4% lower. So interestingly, the rates of in this study were lower in, um, in, post, in the Postal Code areas with a higher proportion of um, African-Americans, Hispanic patients, despite adjusting for the differences in socioeconomic status. So there's some racial component to this as well.
1: Hello all, my name is Natalia Barry and I'm one of the structural and interventional cardiologists at the Mid-Atlantic Kaiser Group. And I have the distinct pleasure of hosting uh, Dr. Renee Bullock-Palmer on today's ECR podcast. I'll give a brief introduction. Dr. Bullock-Palmer is the Director of Non-Invasive Cardiac Imaging and the Director of the Women's Heart Center at the Deborah Heart and Lung Center in Browns Mills, New Jersey. And she has a distinguished resume alongside her leadership titles, serves on multiple national academic committees, um, among them the AHA, the ASC, uh, Mentors Fellows, and has published many, many peer reviewed articles. Um, so really a, an expert in the field. So thank you for, for being here today and, and welcome, Dr. Block Palmer.
0: And thank you for having me today, Dr. Barry.
1: Great, so we'll just launch in. Our topic today is an extremely important and timely one. Um, the topic is socioeconomic factors and impact on utilization and resource access in coronary and structural intervention. Um, briefly, by way of introduction, coronary and structural interventions have gone undergone remarkable growth in the last decades, as we're all aware. In particular, uh, complex percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI, and uh, as of late, structural intervention with really minimally invasive valvular therapies have both expanded dramatically. And yet there has been notable inequitable patient access to these therapies. And in particular, the disparities appear to be most pronounced among patients with low socioeconomic status or SES, we may be abbreviating that today. So really important topic. Um, I thought we would start with PCI or percutaneous coronary interventions, because that's really the procedure that's the cornerstone of interventional cardiology. Dr. Bullock-Parma, what sort of data exists about socioeconomic disparities in PCI?
0: Great, uh, great question. So, a recent systematic review of over 180 studies had um, derived from mainly high-income countries showed that there was an association with lower so, um, SES and the receipt of reperfusion therapy. Um, although the study findings were inconsistent, the study did not separate the means by which these patients were reperfused, with re- uh, thrombolysis thom- versus PCI. Another analysis of over 6 million admissions with acupuncture infarction over a 10-year period between 2004 and 2014 reported that patients in the lowest quartile of median household income were significantly less likely to receive uh, coronary angiography or even PCI, with the greatest effects seen in patients presenting with a STEMI, and residents in low-income um, areas were, were less likely to receive even a catheterization within 24 hours of a STEMI, and we know that you know time is muscle. Um, so, you know, this is very important. And even for non-stemic patients uh, within 48 hours, most of these patients were not meeting that criteria. So there's a lot of work to be done here in this group.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, the one of the things that comes up is often how patients sort of perceive their own health and kind of understand what's happening to them because it's overwhelming for even a, a very literate or, or educated person. So I was curious um, whether you could comment on, you know, how much does health literacy or a patient's understanding of their condition contribute to the effect of this the this SES effect on PCI. I I would imagine that you know cultural and social factors really do influence the patient's level of understanding significantly. Absolutely
0: especially when we're you know facing an increasingly diverse multicultural um you know panel of patients it's very important that um and you know decrease health literacy in these patients with lower socioeconomic status may impact their understanding and coping with the underlying health heart condition. Because of course, if they cannot understand what the disease entails, what needs to be done, then how can we expect them to be acceptable for the therapy that we're delivering to them? So I think health literacy has a very important uh, factor to play. Um, this is further um, worsened by the lack of trust in the healthcare system, particularly um, among um, you know patients with lower socioeconomic status underrepresented groups as well, especially when there's a language barrier. Um, There's sometimes there's a poor physician patient communication and that can just break down, you know, a lot of, um, you know, into a lot of issues in terms of patients accepting the treatment that we're uh, recommending. Um, And as I mentioned, this is heightened in patients, you know, coming from um, a different culture, different language. So it's very important that, you know, if we, have these patients that, you know, they understand what we're saying and we sometimes have to use, you know, translation devices, um, their apps, their even a lot of hospitals actually will have um, a translator available. It's very important that we use these resources. Um, the authors from the previously um, described a study that I mentioned earlier have speculated that, you know, the differences that they saw with uh, reperfusion may be due to the perception that individuals from with low, low, lower income would be less likely to afford um, post-PCI and agents, which, of course, is very critical in keeping the stents open. Uh, there's a strong correlation between education and health literacy. Um, individuals with poor health literacy are more likely to be non-compliant with their medication. So it's um, multiple factors. And I think, um no one, health literacy is important. Two, um, affecting a good patient, physician-patient communication and really trying to, um, to bridge that barrier you know, when we see these patients.
1: Absolutely, yeah, it it really seems that all makes sense and certainly suggests that the barriers really to overcoming these differences in health literacy are significant. Um, And the eventual approach to kind of reconciling or bridging the gap, if you will, will need to be multifaceted. So once patients with low SES do eventually undergo PCI, do we know anything, or what what are the data on any differences in outcomes after the fact? Right. It has been shown that patients with low um,
0: SES scores presenting with a Q-wave infarction, even when they do receive invasive uh, treatments, uh, are less, are more likely to experience a longer reperfusion time, less likely to receive a drug-eluting stent. as compared to a bare metal stent uh, when they do go for um, you know, for revascularization, and are also less likely to receive that end-directed medical therapy at follow-up. Because you know, it's not just, as you know, putting stent in, but all of the, the care that goes with that, making sure that they're taking their antiplatelets and being appropriately followed. In um, an analysis of over 4 million admissions for non-STEMI patients in the U.S., patients in the lower median household income quartile were more likely to be managed um, medically and less likely to receive coronary angiography and angioplasty. Um, the disparities in the receipt of revascularization uh, are not limited to just acute myocardial infarction. Um, another analysis of over three thousand uh, patients out of hospital cardiac arrest, uh, patients admitted alive and captured, um, you know, in the with, with you know actually resuscitated. Um, there's even disparity in that as well in terms of result, how many of these patients are resuscitated and actually successfully resuscitated and brought to the emergency room and subsequently received coronary angiography. Um, another analysis of um, over 100,000 patients in, the, in New York State in their PCI reporting system reported that patients in the highest areas um, of deprivation index, uh, pointile, which is uh, a marker for socioeconomic status, were more likely to be young female, or also um, Blacks living in rural parts of the country and with the highest prevalence of risk factors such as diabetes, congestive heart failure, chronic lung disease, uh, tobacco smoking, obesity, and diabetes. Um, patients in the highest um, you know, areas of deprivation index had the highest odds of having a 30-day mortality with the greatest odds of having readmissions at, in, within the first 30 days. And this is even after adjustment of multiple differences in, in, in the baseline for various and, and race as well. Um, so there's a lot of information uh, in this area. And you know, I would recommend um that our readers could refer to our view the article, but there's so much information with this.
1: Yeah, no, thank you for all that data. Clearly, there's still a lot of improvement needed in terms of improving not only access to PCI. Um, and patient understanding around that process, but also the subsequent outcomes, um, you know, which, um, which, which obviously are, are remain disparate. Um, it also, as I was thinking about this topic and, and preparing for it to a certain degree, it really makes me think that, you know, the as everyone knows here, the sort of randomized clinical trial is the epitome of, you know, uh, sort of robust research. And I, I do think therein lie a lot of disparities as well. We know that You know, for recruitment for these trials, uh, minorities, females, and patients of lower socioeconomic status are really um, consistently underrepresented. With you know, often minority rates less than five percent for a whole trial. So, it's also really an area for improvement going forward as we as we study you know large populations of patients and try new. Devices and drugs and all and so on, because I think that we, we really need to understand them across all of society, not just people that we can easily recruit for trials, so it, it's a it's a it's a big problem. Um, so perhaps we can move on to structural heart procedures um, and, and take a turn away from PCI um, including aortic and mitral procedures, uh, maybe we could start with transcatheter, aortic valve replacement, because that's clearly the most common structural heart procedure. Um, Dr. Bullock-Parmo, could you tell us a little more about what we know about any disparities in TAVR? Right. So, um, you
0: know, there have been several studies that have shown that there's a um, a positive correlation between income and the, you know, um, the probability of having TAVR done. So the lower your income, the less likely. And so on. So, a national cross-sectional analysis of Medicare claims um, had demonstrated that for each $1,000 decrease in median household income, the number of tariff procedures performed per hundred thousand Medicare beneficiaries was 0.2 percent lower. Um, even more, um, for each one unit increase in the Distress Community Index, which is a marker again of, of um, socioeconomic status, the number of tariff procedures performed per hundred thousand of these beneficiaries was 0.4 percent lower. So interestingly, the rates of TAVR in this study were lower in um, in in the Postal Code areas with a higher proportion of um, African-Americans, Hispanic patients, despite adjusting for the differences in socioeconomic status. So there's some racial component to this as well. Uh, There's also greater burden of clinical comorbidities, and also these patients were older. Um, Other studies have reported that for every 10,000 increase in income, the odds of receiving a TAVR increased by 10%. Uh, while non-Black patients were twice as likely to receive TAVR than Black patients. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of um, disparity there. Um, there's some uh, thought that there's some genetic differences between um, African-Americans and Hispanic patients, which may account for lower rates of aortic stenosis On echocardiography, there are two studies that have um, suggested that. So, you know, there's a huge disparity, and I think um,
1: that's an area that, you know, we need to work on. Yeah, no, I think the genetic difference question is very interesting. We um, we just looked at our own echo pool um, of, you know, about 20,000 outpatient echos, and it does seem to be um, a lower rate as well in, in our Kaiser population. And we have almost 20, 30% percent african Americans, so it's a pretty robust population. Um, remarkable. Uh, more work to be done here. So we know that unlike PCI, which can be done at sort of a community hospital, um, and, and, you know, as long as there's cardiac surgery on board, structural heart interventions are kind of restricted to more of a heart team setting, which is typically in a tertiary care center. Um, do we think that this this aspect of the procedure plays a role at all in access?
0: Absolutely. Um, because, you know, as I mentioned, um, the disparities, you know, not only reflect the systemic racism and differences in referral patterns, but also the inequitable introduction of these new technologies to, you know, um, hospital systems that are in the rural areas, uh, in the underserved areas, and I think um, that's something that is also contributing to the disparity. Um, a study that was led by Dr. Nathan and his colleagues uh, had looked at the characteristics of approximately of, of 500 hospitals that had developed have programs in the U.S. between 2012 and 2018, and they had used Medicare data, and along with the patient's socioeconomic position uh, that these hospitals served. And in order to study whether there was a disparity in the diffusion of these new technologies by socioeconomic status. And the hospitals that started TAVA programs during the initial growth of um, the technology in the U.S. had higher median household incomes and were less likely to be based in areas of lower distressed community index scores. Um, and during this initial growth of TAVA programs, hospitals serving welfare patients were more likely to start programs leading to this, the disparities and the dis- dispersion and access to TABR in these lower, um, you know, socioeconomic uh, communities. Um, so I think that, that definitely it has um, a part to play. Um, in the U.S., uh, communities with a high proportion of uninsured, uninsured patients lack, lack the presence of high-quality, well-funded hospitals or institutions within their own communities that have this expertise in performing these sort of, um, interventions. And without the, the hub and spoke model that could reliably care for patients, regardless of their insurance status, uh, significant access barriers will remain in place, unfortunately. Um, you know, government costs, I think, in the US, you know, have incentivized physicians as well to practice, um, you know, in, to, to be less likely to be, to practice in these rural and underserved communities. Because oftentimes, you know, physicians coming out to training have large, you know, medical school loan payments and um, visa way you know there's lots of uh, practice to play and you know oftentimes you know for for us to recruit patient physicians into these underserved areas i think this is an opportunity to have uh, visa waivers uh, for for physicians who um you know who, who are immigrants and also having a loan repayment forgiveness program to encourage these physicians to practice in these underserved areas and develop these um, very important programs such as TAVR and other structural interventions. Um, and despite this strategy, you know, it, it's still imperative that we have all, you know, stakeholders at the table to really secure the retention of these highly qualified physicians in these communities.
1: Absolutely. You know, that's great. And, and I'd love to come back to this a little bit as we hoping to end on a positive note, thought we would sort of cover the proposed solutions you know, going forward for some of these disparities. So, um, But that, that's a great sort of launch point uh, for uh, subsequent discussion. Um, so it really does seem like geography and accessibility of tertiary care centers in particular is a significant factor for determining access to care and, and certainly should be an area of focus, uh, as Dr. Ola-Kwalmer has outlined going forward. Um, so perhaps we could just touch briefly on mitral valve intervention, since we just discussed some of the data for TAVR disparity and what we know about disparities in this realm before we then move on to propose solutions for these barriers. Okay. So, um, you know,
0: the studies in this area is a little bit more sparse compared to TAVR, um, but, you know, socioeconomic status, again, influences a choice of technique and clinical outcomes of mitral valve surgery. Um, in a report from the Society of the Orthopedic Surgeons, patients of lower socioeconomic position had more urgent non-degenerative mitral valve pathology, and despite this, they received less uh, surgical mitral valve repair and had worse outcomes. Whereas patients with higher socioeconomic um, positions were more likely to travel, um, you know, further, you know, further for the surgery and receive operations from higher volume surgeons. And the data that was regarding uh, mitral valve repair compared to open valve replacement was queried from the um, NIS um, National, National Inpatient Sample for 2017, and patients undergoing TMPR were older, more affluent, um, 4 to 6, above, half of them were female, and there was no difference in adjusted mortality between surgical MBR and transcaptor uh, metrobial replacement. Um, with regards to edge-to-edge repair, um, access um, should, you know, should be placed in a context that includes the burden of severe metroviral insufficiency, both primary and secondary. And to date, only one single center study from England actually has um, assessed um, more racial differences in the prevalence of moderate to severe MR, with um, Caucasians having 6.7% versus Black patients 5.3%. And in the U.S., um, uh, Black patients have had a disproportionate burden of hypertension chronic kidney disease, adverse socioeconomic environment, and also structural racism that puts them at a higher risk for incident heart failure with subsequent hospitalizations and death. So it's reasonable um, to extrapolate that the burden of severe MR may be higher among um, African-American patients, but the data supporting this is lacking. Um, So I think this is an opportunity for um, researchers in the field to really look at this patient population to, to study this some more. Um, with studies um, evaluating disparities in, in edge-to-edge repair access and outcomes, they've used primarily the NIS data from 2013 to 2018, and the majority of uh, these cases analyzed. These studies were most likely were to um, treat primary MR, since they see the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services recently had a coverage for patients with secondary MR as of January of last year. Um, And, you know, African-American patients were significantly younger, had a higher burden of comorbidities, and up to half of them lived in the lowest median household income neighborhood quartiles. So even after adjustment for pre-procedural differences, uh, these patients experienced a higher rates of death, um, but similar rates of overall inpatient complications. um, And similarly, those living in the lowest income quartiles had worse in-hospital outcomes when compared with those of the higher um, income quartiles. Um, so additionally, um, urgent edge repair was more frequently seen amongst um, younger patients, so the um, Hispanic patients, Medicaid insurance patients. And um, of course, we know that an urgent edge repair is, is not optimal. You want to really have these done electively because the outcomes are better in, 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 um, when it's electively performed. So there's a lot of data in this um, space. I think a lot of room for, for more research. Uh, We definitely have a lot less research in this area compared to DAVR.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And it just goes to show, you know, clearly disparities are pervasive really through all tranches of interventional procedures, even though we are lacking data, as you suggest. Um, Well, you've really provided us with such a tremendous overview of the current problem. Uh, I wonder if we could switch gears just a little bit to discuss potential means of improving these issues, because I know you have some thoughts there. Um, Given your extensive knowledge of the disparity in care we've been discussing for really our most vulnerable patient population, um, could you talk us through some of the the solutions moving forward to potentially address these disparities? Yes, I think it really has to be a
0: multifaceted approach. you know, starting from, you know, national government, local government with interventions and really um, in, investing more in these communities to provide, um, you know, institutions of, of, you know, hospital institutions, um, heart centers with high that delivers high quality um, health care and improving access um, to, to these institutions. You know, access is something that's very important because, you know, for someone that may not have a car to take two buses and a train across, you know, across town might seem seem to be a daunting process for these patients. So we really have to not only build these quality programs within the communities, but improve access, improve um, public transportation, safe public transportation um, for these patients as well. Um, A healthy environment is important because, of course, a healthy lifestyle will then, you know, more likely, you know, take these patients away from having these risk factor burdens that they that they have early in their years, um, that then leads them to have these valve, um, sort you know valve disease and and coronary disease, and in a healthy environment starts um, from childhood into young adulthood, middle age, and so on. You know, really having um, access to good, um, high quality, um, you know, food, um, safe place to exercise, um, education is important. Um, you know, building good schools where children can, you know learn and become um, you know adults that can be really engaged in the society and moving these patients out of the lower socioeconomic status is very important. Now bring it back to our um, our profession I think increasing the presence of medical schools in, in you know and in, in tertiary care um in, in communities in, in these lower socioeconomic um, communities is very important. Um, you know, you know in, in New York where I trained, you know there's so many hospitals and you know all areas of 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 new york city but as you go further more rural areas that's not likely the case sometimes patients have to travel 50 miles to get to a tertiary care center sometimes even 100 miles so I, i think you know these are some of the areas that um that could be worked on and i think as i had mentioned this is a multi-faceted approach
1: yeah no i think i mean most importantly you've um you really outlined that things have to happen at all different tiers. So, so at the local national government, sort of the education, medical school level, and, and really in the community as well, where we support people at a grassroots level and, and really try to change their way of just thinking their day to day, like what kind of snack they reach for, what kind of like, there's so many things just to kind of, you know, that we can, we can address at so many different levels. And I think it harkens back to, um, what you were talking about as well i think the role of the physician um and having to um be that resource for the patient and learning to overcome the language the trust barriers um using all of the resources we have available to us including the interpreter systems and family outreach all sorts of things um, but really training training physicians better in communication and i think you, you really outlined that um any, any sort of, you know, uh, you know, I think, I think, in taking a step back, we really have our work cut out for us for, for, for this this disparity issue. Um, and I would highlight that even though this problem of disparity uh, in care for patients of lower socioeconomic status, which as Dr. Pullup, pullup Palmer has really mentioned, seems to affect you know certain races in, in particular. Um, really seems like a difficult one to address. I think it's also critical that we invest resources in this in the ways that um, Dr. Bullock-Palmer has outlined. Um, Without a doubt, you know, these patients are our most vulnerable patients and we really have to do a better job providing them access to care, to longitudinal care, and then care that they can really buy into and believe in and understand. Um, Dr. Bullock-Palmer, I just wanted to ask if you had any final comments uh, before I I say a few concluding words.
0: Thanks. And I think um, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to, you know, be able to publish this important piece in, in, in your journal. And, um, you know, as, as you were saying, you know, this is not just doom and gloom, but this is one raising awareness of this disparity. And then what can we do as a profession, as a community, as a legislative government to improve, um, you know, and to dispel these disparities. So thanks for, for shining a light on the situation. And hopefully, with the proposed solutions that we had in our article, you know, it will have lead some greater thoughts and probably putting words into action.
1: Yes, please let us know if you're running for any kind of medical legislative leadership, because we'll we'll all vote for you based on your all your solutions. Um, so, thank you. This concludes our program today. Um, on behalf of the European Cardiology Review, I hope that you have enjoyed our discussion about this critically important topic. Um, Biggest thanks, of course, to Dr. Bullock Palmer. Uh, pleasure to see you, meet you. Thank you again for being our guest discussing today. It's really just tremendous to hear from you, especially with all of your expertise and knowledge on this topic. So, so thank you for being here. And thank you for the opportunity.